So today is the shortest day of the year. Well, at least that's what we like to say. Tomorrow morning is the winter solstice, the time when the northern hemisphere is the furthest from the sun. And today is called the shortest day of the year because the sun sets at 4.50 p.m. and does not rise until 7.34. That means there's 14 and a half hours of darkness. And in the middle of that darkness is we kind of enter into the Christmas season. And I love that the winter solstice for us and the darkest day of the year is just days from Christmas, which is a, a day filled with light and joy. And honestly, that's so um, descriptive of the life we live in this time, not just in 2020, but just in general, this side of the fall, longing for Christ to come and bring the light to break into the darkness of this world. We know what it is to live in darkness physically, spiritually, relationally, nationally, right? We know the brokenness of this world. And so even just the arrival of Christmas, four days after the darkest day of the year, is, is a day where we eagerly await. We wait for Christmas. And in that same longing, we wait for Christ to come again, to bring the light that pushes into this darkness. I know for many of us, 2020 has been one of the darkest years. Uh, we've lived through one of the most politically polarized uh, elections. We are in a completely you know, antagonistic society right now where each side hates each other in a way that we haven't felt in generations. This summer, we saw the rising up of the issue of racial injustice, which has not been fully healed and dealt with in this country. There is brokenness because of our racial past dealing with slavery and dealing with injustices and inequalities that continue. And then we've had a global pandemic, the likes of which we haven't seen in 100 years, a pandemic that has been especially challenging for the poor. We think about the poor in our own country, those who live paycheck to paycheck, those whose kids struggle with the online learning, those who don't have stores of food or stores of money in their background. And that's just in America. In some of the poorest parts of the world, the pandemic has hit even harder because the health, uh, the, you know, the, the doctors aren't there, the medicine isn't there, and the economies are completely shut down. It is a dark year in this world. I wonder how long we could hold on in this sort of a darkness. You know, Israel in the first century had dealt with a darkness like this, not just for one year, but for hundreds of years. For 400 years, they had not had a word from the prophets like Malachi and Zechariah. And they longed for God to come to bring hope. For hundreds of years before that, they had been under Babylonian exile. They had lived for almost 700 years in some version of being squashed by their enemies, held down by the Egyptians, then the Babylonians, and in Jesus' day by the Romans. They were in darkness, hoping for some light to break through. Luke 1, which we've been looking at the past few weeks in our series Awaiting the King during this Advent and Christmas season, Luke 1 is a series of uh, prophecies and hopes of God's light breaking into the darkness that Israel was experiencing. And one of the things you see if you read Luke 1 and 2, the whole story, is that there are four songs, four songs. You have the Song of Mary that we talked about last week, the Magnificat. We have the Song of Simeon that we say every time we do Compline, that is the prophet, uh, the old man Simeon who saw Jesus in the temple. We hear the angels sing a song to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest because the light has broken in. And today we look at Zechariah. 
Zechariah, the song of the father of John the Baptist, that he declared very much in echoing an Old Testament type of prophecy. So the song of Zechariah towards the end of Luke 1 comes after John the Baptist has been born, another miraculous birth that precedes the birth of Jesus. Zechariah and Elizabeth, his wife, were old and they were barren. They had no children. But God miraculously brings them a son who would be a prophet, who would lay the groundwork, the preparation of people's hearts in the nation of Israel for the coming of the Messiah, of God himself in the person of Jesus. And so once uh, they name John, his name, Zechariah's mouth is opened up. The spirit of the Lord fills him. And the very first thing out of his mouth, after he hadn't spoken for months, is this song of praise. And what's great about it is it really does echo Old Testament prophecies, and it looks back on all the hopes of the Old Testament. He cites Abraham and the promises of the covenant made to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and 18. He cites uh, the story of David and the promise of a coming king like David that we just had read in 2 Samuel, that David was a king after God's own heart, but one day a son of David would reign forever. And then he says, all the mouth of the prophets have spoken. All the mouths of the prophets have spoken. He basically is summing up the whole Old Testament. He's saying all the promises from, from Moses to Samuel through David in the Psalms to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Malachi and all the way down, all of those prophets had one voice. And the voice was this, that one day God would visit and redeem his people. God would come and he would redeem his people. He would visit and he would deliver. You know, when the Old Testament looked at that idea of visiting and delivering, it's one of the things that's said again and again in the prophets and in the Psalms that God will come and visit and deliver. When God comes to visit, it means that he comes to do something. And in the Old Testament, the idea of God visiting meant that he came both to judge and to save. He came always in his presence to bring judgment and truth and salvation and mercy. The song of Zechariah that we just had read looks back at the story of Exodus and the longing for Yahweh, God, the Lord to come and bring judgment and deliverance. And that's what happened in the story of Exodus, the defining story of the people of Israel. They are in bondage, literally held under the people, the, the nation of Egypt as slaves. And they cry out to God for deliverance. When God does come through his prophet Moses and then, and then in his hand coming strong upon Egypt, he comes and brings judgment in the plagues that are judgments on the gods and the powers of Egypt. And then he delivers Israel. And even in the deliverance passing through the Red Sea, he brings further judgment on the enemies, setting them completely free and leading them to the promised land that he had given them. In Jesus' day, the people who'd been in bondage and in darkness for centuries cried out for God to come again and deliver them. It's like they, they hear that story of the Exodus and Zechariah is retelling that story essentially saying, yes, Lord, do that again. The thing you did back then, do it again. We need you to come and deliver us. One of the things that jumps out as you read the song of Zechariah is that the deliverance is for a purpose. The people aren't just delivered so they could do whatever they want, nor are they delivered um, you know, so they can find themselves. They're not delivered so that they can, uh, they, they're delivered, it says, 
so they can serve God without fear. Deliver us from the hand of our enemies that we might serve him without fear. That that phrase in the word fear, without fear, is at the very end of this long sentence, which means it's in the emphatic position. It's the whole point of deliverance. The whole point of God redeeming, saving, delivering is so that you can serve him without fear. Delivered to be without fear. Think about the implications of living a life with no fear. Nothing to be afraid of ever. And that's why the gospel that Zechariah is pointing to, that all the prophets point to, that the stories, the lessons and lessons and carols point to, is not just the coming of Christ in some hopeful way. It is that God would come to deliver and deliver us from fear. And in that sense, the gospel is several things. One of the things is, is that the gospel is physical and political. You know, in the Old Testament, when it talked about freedom or deliverance, the idea of freedom and deliverance, we tend to think about it spiritually. Like, I need deliverance spiritually. As Christians, we often do that. But in the Old Testament, it also always meant, and even more emphatically meant, deliverance physically, freedom physically, and freedom politically. Not just personally, it's our whole nation. Not just, I want to be free, we need to be free. And, and that's, in a sense, a political statement, meaning the systems of how uh, law is established, how equity is established, how power is shared, that the political systems need to be overturned. Not just my system needs to be overturned. And physically, we need to be set free. We are literally slaves in Egypt. So Israel's hope when they were in Egypt was, yes, to be delivered so they could worship God, so they could serve him, worship him. And that's a spiritual part of their deliverance. But it also completely, inevitably involved physical deliverance and political deliverance. They were slaves in Egypt. They didn't just want to be able to know God more deeply. They wanted to no, no longer be slaves. They wanted to be physically set free from their chains and politically released from being under the hand of an oppressive Egyptian uh, leadership over them. And they went from a series from Egypt to Babylon and now to Rome. And they're longing for that. You know, it's, it's probable that Israel in the first century, um, they, they understated the uh, element of spiritual darkness that they were in. Because they saw Rome as the enemy. They saw themselves physically being oppressed, politically being oppressed. And they didn't see the role that Jesus came to bring spiritual release from sin and death and darkness that they were bound to by their fallen nature. In our modern world, we as Christians, especially in the West, we tend to emphasize the spiritual. And we overlook the physical and political nature of what Jesus came to do. That Jesus did come to bring us freedom from our sin, fearlessness in the face of death. But he also came to do something for those in physical bondage, for those in political oppression. He came to change the world's order. And in that sense, the gospel is always also revolutionary. You know, the gospel is not primarily, or not only individualistic pietism. It's not just, um, how can I be a better person? How can I get to heaven? I mean, I do think the gospel has implications for that. There is one way to heaven, it is Jesus Christ. 
There is a spiritual and a personal element to responding to the gospel. But when Jesus came, he did not just come to bring you individualistic spiritual pietism, a better way to live. He came to overthrow the world's order. Jesus came to bring... <laughs> Sorry, my dog just ran under my feet. He hasn't done that in a while. He's having good fun now. <laughs> It's hard to keep a straight face in the midst of a dog running under your feet trying to get the UPS guy. Um, Jesus came, I don't know what we were talking about, probably Jesus, right? Um, Jesus came not just for personal pietism. That's what I was going to say. Sorry. He, he came to bring hope. And that's what, you know, the gospel, we've talked about this before. The word gospel means good news. And I think we can, we can gloss over gospel again and again. We can talk about it as if, like, we know what it is. But what we tend to think about is purely forgiveness of sins and, and my salvation, which is very true. But the word gospel means news or good news. And in the way that it was used in the first century as a Roman term, a Greek term, it was good news that affected everyone. Good news of a victorious, uh, a victory by your army that set you free, released you from the oppression of a neighboring country. It was freedom and hope and joy. It was good news that affected everyone and changed things for people. And so the gospel, in that sense, is revolutionary. Jesus came to overthrow the world's order, an order that was decidedly not worshiping and serving God alone. We live in a fallen world. We know that. This year, we definitely know that. Whether it is the fallenness of, of, of brokenness with sickness and viruses that we can't control, to our animosity in, in different sides of our, of our country, we live in a broken and fallen world where we are sinful and our systems are incomplete and we have poverty and sadness and grief and death constantly staring us in the face. And we see that especially this year. A few months ago, we looked at the story of the, the kingdom of God and who is the true king. You know, in our world, we have a lot of people that serve as kings. And there are kingdoms of this earth. The city of man is the way we talked about it, borrowing from Augustine. There are systems of power and of values that this world pushes forward, holds on to, that are completely against the ways of God. Jesus came as the King of Kings, the only one we truly worship, the one who can right all wrongs to establish a kingdom, a new order, a new in God order. And Jesus' kingdom involves deliverance, the freedom from bondage and fear spiritually, physically, socially, politically, emotionally, relationally. He came to bring peace, shalom, wholeness, to overthrow all the other systems that are out there. And in that sense, the gospel is always inherently political and revolutionary. And especially, especially so for those who are in bondage or fear. The gospel is especially good news for the poor and the powerless. And you know, that has implications for us. 
It has implications for our engagement in this world, that we can't just be happy to know Jesus and get to heaven, that we have a calling to be lights in the darkness, to bring the hope of God's kingdom that Jesus came to establish, to initiate, until he comes again to bring it in full. We live out the calling of that kingdom under the true king, a different world order, one that is always going to be revolutionary, is always going to challenge every culture, every political system on some level. There is no king on this earth that is ever completely content with Jesus being king. And that includes ourselves. We don't necessarily even want him to be in our lives. But the calling is to serve him without fear and to make sure that all people can live without fear. That's our calling in 2021 and the decade that follows as God's people. The gospel is physical and political. It is revolutionary and it is lastly incarnational. You know, at Christmas, God births a revolution, right? Jesus arriving, God arriving in that baby is a revolution in and of itself. It anticipates the overthrow of sin and evil that Jesus does on the cross. And it anticipates the establishing of God's kingdom order that is continuing to unfold in his church and will one day be brought in full when he comes again. The incarnation means that God came here. He visited this place as an actual baby, a baby being held by a peasant teenage girl in a rural Middle Eastern shed, and that was God. God fully physically present to bring light into the darkness, to bring redemption and deliverance. God came here in that baby, and he intends to do the same in you and me, to visit us, to take up residence in and with us, and to deliver the world right now through us, his people, his presence in this world. He calls us to be the light in the darkness as he is the light in the darkness. He calls us to be the light in the darkness in our homes, on our street, in our town and city until, until the earth is filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, at Christmas, we celebrate the birth of the one who created the world. What a powerful image of God's humbling himself to enter humanity. You desire to do that in each of our hearts and lives. And so through us to bring deliverance, hope and light to a dark and broken world until you come again. May we be receptive to the gift of your son, open to the revolution you want to do in our lives. And may we live without fear, serving you in this world. Amen.